I'm going to be reading from Nehemiah. It's Nehemiah chapter 1. If you have a Bible, do do open it up or turn it on. And we will read Nehemiah chapter 1 together. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard this, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exile people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. Thank you, Tom. Let's, uh, let's pray before we come round to God's words together. Father God, as we open up your word together now, as we look at what it says, we pray, Father God, above everything in the midst, we will hear your voice. We pray it will be a challenge to us. We pray it will be an encouragement to us. We pray, Lord God, that you will help us to take those steps on our journey of faith, that we might draw closer to you and have an impact in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we're kicking off a new series together today. We're going to be in the book of Nehemiah together over the course of the next few weeks. And the title of my sermon today is From Prayer to Action, because this is where I believe God wants us to go. 
We've had people back in the building for the last couple of weeks together. We've been doing some test congregations to get to this stage where we can open it up slightly wider. And it is so good to have people signed up to come into this building again today. It's so good to be able to look out at faces while I am talking. But let's be honest, who would have thought we would have been in this particular situation at the beginning of 2020? Who could have ever envisaged we would not have been able to gather as a full congregation and a full church? We had so much planned as a church for 2020. We had so much in the dial. We had so much to look forward to. We had so much coming up. We were bursting at the seams as a congregation. We were beginning to have to think of new ways that we could meet together because we were simply running out of space. We were in exciting times. And I went to several different leaders' meetings at the beginning of 2020 with leaders from across this city and some meetings further afield. And at every meeting that I went to, there seemed to be a phrase which kept coming up Time and time again, this is the start of the Roaring Twenties. Now, I know that's not a new phrase. I know that's a phrase which is referring to a time 100 years ago, a time of economic prosperity and a time where people seem to be living relatively good lives. But there seems to be this prophecy which was being spoken time and time again over God's people and over the church. At the start of this year, God was going to move in an extraordinary way. That the church was going to find its roar again. That the church was going to rise up and be what the church was being called to be. And then COVID hit. Everything stopped. Or that's how it seems. Ministries stopped. People could no longer see each other anymore. People could no longer hang out with each other anymore. Everything seemed to just grind to a halt. Were these prophecies wrong? Were they just nice, pithy sayings that sometimes leaders say from time to time to kind of get people excited? Was God even in this at all? I believe that God was 100% in those prophecies which were being spoken over the church. Because here's the thing. How many of you know that in order to start something new, at times, something old has to stop? If you want to make a conscious decision to lose weight, for example, you're going to have to stop eating junk food in order to be able to meet your targets. If you want to buy a house, you're going to have to stop spending your money on everything and anything and come up with a savings plan in order to get to a point where you're going to have enough money to buy a house. You you know, sometimes when a new thing starts, old ground has to be broken up. When a builder begins to build a house, what's the first thing that he does? He digs, he breaks up old ground, he breaks the ground in order to lay foundations because if he doesn't lay the right foundations, the house that he is going to build will not stand and it will not be able to do what it was intended to do. In order to start something new, sometimes old things have to stop. And you know, for the church, I believe that's exactly the season that we have been in. I'm not just talking about Hope Baptist Church. I'm talking about the church of Jesus Christ in general. You see, the church has become over the years so institutionalized, so steeped in tradition and programs that when God says, I'm doing a new thing and I'm going to pour new wine into this church, actually, it doesn't fit. 
because we're so busy and we're so programmed out and we're so steeped in that tradition that we just can't do the things that God is calling us to do. This season has not been simply about pausing activities and waiting for them to start up again. No, this is about stopping some of those things which should have been stopped years ago in order to embrace what God is doing now. That we, as the church of Jesus Christ, can become refocused, re-energized, and re-envisaged on the mission of God that he is calling us to today. This season has been about breaking old grounds in order to produce a fertile harvest in the name of Jesus. And you know, as much as it has hurt at times, as much as we have had questions about where God is and what he is doing and what he is up to, as much as we have probably grieved for some of the things that we miss from previous months and years, these are exciting times. Because in the midst of the questions and the pain, God has been at work. In the midst of everything which has been going on, God is doing a new thing and preparing the ground for what is to come. And you know, now I believe God is saying to the church, it's time to build. The ground has been broken. It's time for the new season. It's time for the new phase. I am doing a new thing. Do you not perceive it? And we're starting this book of Nehemiah together today. And the themes which are going to come out of this book in Nehemiah, I believe, are going to be pivotal themes in order to see foundations laid which will transform and change a community which will transform and change a church in Jesus' name. But before we get into the nitty-gritty of this book, just a very brief history lesson about how we've ended up at this point in the Bible in this book to give us a little bit of context. I spoke very briefly at the beginning of the year on Nehemiah, so some of this stuff might be familiar to you, but I think it's really important to lay the groundwork to where we're going in this particular book. So if we were to go back to the book of Exodus, what we would see is that God calls the nation of Israel, who are in slavery in Egypt at the time, out of Egypt, and promises them that they're going to have their own land, and it's going to be absolutely amazing. And that's what we see. This nation, they come out of Egypt, and they're on the way to the promised land. But when they come out of Egypt, they begin to doubt the goodness and the grace of God. So God allows them to walk around and wander around for 40 years in the desert until there's a generation which comes up after them who put their trust and their hope in God and his plans and his promises. That generation is led by Joshua into the promised land and they get into the promised land and what they inherit for themselves is a land which is flowing with milk and honey. Finally, Israel has its own land. It has borders which are established. It looks like things are going in the right direction. But when the people get into the land, what they see is that all the nations around them have earthly kings. And they begin to say to themselves, well, how come these nations have got an earthly king? We don't have an earthly king. We want an earthly king. So they plead with God, please give us an earthly king for ourselves. And God says, all right, you can have an earthly king, but it won't go well for you. But nevertheless, that's what they want, so that's what they get. So Saul is made king over Israel. And now Saul is the epitome of what you would expect a king to look like. He's a foot taller than everyone else. He is an amazing hunter. He's got muscles to die for. Girls want to be with him. Guys want to be him. He looks like a king. But the problem with Saul 
is that he had characteristics which were very much like the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. He began to doubt the goodness and the grace of God. And he began to offer sacrifices to God which weren't acceptable to God. So God ultimately removes him as king of Israel. The next king was quite different from Saul. Israel went from having the perfect looking king to someone who wasn't even considered to be king. You see, on God's instruction, Samuel was asked to go to a man named Jesse and asked him to line all of his sons up and he was going to pick the next king of Israel. So that's what Jesse does, but he forgets one. He leaves his son David out on the, on the fields looking after the sheep. But it's that forgotten shepherd boy who ultimately becomes the king of Israel. And under his leadership, Israel begins to flourish. And under his leadership, all the threats that Israel had around them begun to die out. But then he dies, and Solomon, his son, becomes king. And Solomon is the one who builds the temple, and peace reigns in the land. Israel then establishes itself as a regional power. But after Solomon, things begin to get a little bit tough for Israel. You see, the nation becomes fragmented into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom, which is called Israel, and the southern kingdom, which is called Judah. The, the northern kingdom did not fare well. It had wicked king after wicked king after wicked king. And finally, a group of people called the Assyrians turn up on the scene and they lay siege to the northern empire and they overthrow it. They deport all of the best people from Israel, scatter them all over the ancient world. The southern state held on for a little bit longer, 136 years to be precise. But then another group of people turn up called the Babylonians and they ransack the southern state and the same thing happens to them. Fast forward a little bit, the Persians now show up on the scene and they decide that they want to be the people who are going to rule the world. So they conquered the Babylonians, who conquered the Assyrians, and they then are in charge. Then at the end of the book of Second Chronicles, the Holy Spirit tells Cyrus, who is the king of Persia, that the Jews have to go back to Jerusalem in order to rebuild the temple. And that's where we get the books Ezra and Nehemiah from. So picking up the story in Nehemiah chapter 1, we just heard it read, but I'll just go over it. We read these words. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who have survived the exile are in great trouble and shame. The wall around Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Let's stop there for a minute. We live in Plymouth and we don't rely on a city having walls around us in order for protection. But at the time, for a city to have walls was extremely important. In fact, you probably could argue that a city relied more on its walls than it did on its army. You see, without a wall, a city could not control its affairs. They would be dictated by any outside force that wanted to come in and ransack them, and they could use violence, and they could do nothing whatsoever about it. That's why we read in the book of Proverbs 25 and 28 these words, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Israel could no longer control their own affairs because the walls of Jerusalem have been broken down. That's why walls are so important. And what was needed was a time of rebuilding. 
what I want us to see today as we open up this book together and at the start of this week of prayer is that as we, as a church, start a period and a season of rebuilding, there is one important ingredient which cannot be missed out. The importance of prayer in the process. You see, prayer is one of the overriding themes of the book of Nehemiah. The prayer that we've heard read to us in chapter 1 is the first prayer of 12 prayers in this book. The book starts with a prayer in Persia and it ends with a prayer in Jerusalem. We see prayers of adoration, prayers of thanksgiving, we see prayers of confession, we see prayers of joy, we see prayers of anguish, dependence and commitment. Prayer is the central theme to the rebuilding process. Prayer, you see, gives Nehemiah perspective. Prayer widens his horizon. It sharpens his vision and it dwarfs his anxieties. I wonder how many people in this room today or who are watching online today are in need of some perspective in their life right now. I wonder how many people in this room today or who are watching online right now are in need of having their vision sharpened and their anxieties crushed. It starts with prayer. I don't know what your prayer life is like right now, but what I want us to see today is the important lessons that Nehemiah teaches us about prayer, and in particular, a church which prays and how it changes situations. And what we notice as we look at Nehemiah chapter 1 together is there is a process to Nehemiah's prayer which ultimately leads to change. And the first part of that process is that Nehemiah has concern about the situation. Verse 4 says this, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. And I continued fasting and praying before the gods of heaven. In some ways, this is a really odd verse of scripture. You see, Nehemiah, as we heard at the end of chapter 1, was the cupbearer to the king. He lived 800 miles away from Jerusalem. His role as the cupbearer to the king was basically to sample all of the food and all of the wine that the king was about to eat in order to make sure it wasn't poisoned. So Nehemiah lived in the palace and lived this life of luxury. Yet he hears about Jerusalem and he's shaken to the core. Despite having the very best of everything in the palace, it's the fact that Jerusalem is on its knees which drove Nehemiah to his knees. Churches trip up when they allow themselves to become unaffected by the plight of the outsider and stay within their comfort zone. Let me say that again because I think that's really important for us to understand. Churches trip up when we become unaffected by the plight of the outsider and stay within our comfort zone. You know, it's so easy, isn't it? To be unaffected and unaware by everything that's going on around us. Sometimes we're unaffected and unaware by that stuff which is going on within us, let alone what's going on in other people's lives. Nehemiah hadn't actually ever been to Jerusalem. He would have heard stories about Jerusalem, but he was broken over the complacency of the people who now lived in Jerusalem. You see, the people who were left behind in Jerusalem lived in ruins and simply accepted it. They were walking around and willing to walk around in total devastation. Friends, Nothing in our lives, nothing in our church, nothing in our city, nothing in our nation will ever change unless we, as the people of God, become concerned about the situation. 
It's incredibly easy, isn't it, to find ourselves living in rubble and just simply accepting it. This is how it is now. This is how it is always going to be. I'm never, ever going to see any change or anything happen, so I'm just going to accept it. But the question is, as we stand at what I believe is a new season for the church of Jesus Christ, are we willing to allow God to do a rebuilding process in our own life as well as the church? And that starts with becoming really concerned about the situation. That starts with us coming on our knees and praying, God, make me concerned about the things which concern you. Make me concerned about the lost in this city of Plymouth. Make me concerned about the broken and the hurting in our community. Make me concerned about the thousands of refugees who are being forced to leave everything that they know in order to find a better way of living. Give me a genuine concern for my own personal walk. I don't want to be happy with the status quo anymore. I don't want to just be willing to turn up for church. And that is the sum total of my faith. Help me, Lord. Know you deeper than I ever have before. When Nehemiah heard the reports of Jerusalem, he lamented. Do you need some rebuilding in your own life today, I wonder? Are your defenses so broken by allowing past hurts and past pains and past cycles of sin to dominate and control your life? You know it doesn't have to be that way. Prayer is the starting point of change. Nehemiah's prayer moves from a place of concern for the situation to a place of conviction. You see, after Nehemiah surveys the situation, he reminds himself who God is, and he reminds himself of the character of God. He says these words, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. You see, Nehemiah recognizes God as Lord. He recognizes that he is the master and he refers to himself as the servant. He recognizes that the God of heaven, the God that we're here today singing about and talking about and reading about is far beyond our comprehension and understanding. He's far beyond our earthly thinking. He refers to him as being great and awesome, reminding himself That this God that he worships is a God who needs to be honoured and feared. Before finally reminding himself that this God is a God of love who keeps his covenant. You see, because of Nehemiah's conviction of who God is, he knew that God was not only willing to listen to his prayers, but he was willing to answer his prayers as well. I wonder this morning, how does your knowledge of God affect the way you pray? When you pray, do you believe anything will actually happen? I know from my own situation that prayer is something which changes situations and circumstances that we find ourselves in. And one of the ways that we learn to pray with confidence is by knowing the God that we're praying to. Too often we come and we think of God as this kind of father figure in the sky who's a bit grumpy and who's not going to do anything. So we come to him very tentatively and we come to him as if he's not going to answer anything that we ask for. But that's not the God that we worship. That's not the God of the Bible. We need to be knowing who he is by opening his words and revealing his character to us from Scripture. That's why the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray started, Our Father in heaven... Holy is your name. 
It's a, a way of reminding us who God is, that he has all authority, all power at his control. When we pray, declaring who God is, that he is the Lord over the situation, it reminds us once again that nothing is impossible when it comes to the realm of God's. And this season, going forward, there will be highs and there will be lows for us individually and for us as a church. There will be times where it feels incredibly stormy and it feels incredibly uncomfortable. But when we know the God's who the battle belongs to, it doesn't feel quite so huge. And we can sing with confidence. I'm going to sing in the middle of the storm when we're allowed to sing together, obviously. But we can sing with confidence that he is in control of the situation. Nehemiah's prayer moves from conviction in who God is to confession. After being concerned about the situation and realizing who God is, he says in verses 6 and 7, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and the laws you gave your servant Moses. Nehemiah understood a vital gospel truth. Restoration for the people would not come because the people deserved it. Far from it, they had been a wicked people. But restoration would come to the people because of God's outrageous love and his outrageous grace. Restoration would come to the people because God is faithful even when we are not. And as a result, Nehemiah finds himself driven to his knees in prayer. And in Nehemiah's confession, what we see are three key ingredients. There's intensity. This wasn't simply a dear God bless the Israelites kind of prayer, amen. But this was a prayer that he prayed on behalf of the people day and night. We see honesty in Nehemiah's prayer too. He wasn't simply praying on behalf of the people, but he included himself in the situation too. He realized that he had stuffed up and that he had sinned. Nehemiah confessed that he too was part of the problem and wanted God to change him. And there was an urgency to Nehemiah's prayer too. He realized the seriousness of his sin and he wanted it dealt with. You know, we cannot hide our sin from God's. And if you're here today and you're thinking to yourself, I want this season in my life to be different than the last one. I want to see this rebuilding process take place in the church and also in my own life. It starts with honesty. It starts with coming to God and just saying, God, here I am with all my weaknesses, with all my flaws, with all my baggage, with all my mess-ups and all my screw-ups. Will you take me as I am? And you know this God that we're talking about today will meet you as you are, with all of your mess-ups and your baggage and your sin. And he promises that when we come to him, he starts a work in our life, which begins to change and transform us to make us more like his son. The fourth thing we see in Nehemiah's prayer is simply confidence. He goes on to say in verses 8 to 10, Remember the instruction you gave to your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, 
I will gather them from there and bring them back to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. In this part of the prayer, Nehemiah recalls the words of Moses. What's he getting at? Well, firstly, he recalls that God said to Israel, if they disobeyed God, that they would be scattered and they'd be sent to a foreign land. And that was fulfilled. That's why this book is there, because the nation of Israel was scattered all over the ancient world. But there was a second part of that promise, wasn't there, that was yet to be fulfilled. They were still waiting for the nation of Israel to come back to Jerusalem. So Nehemiah is praying, Lord, the first part of the prayer has happened. But God, your promise says there's another part to this prayer, and you're going to bring your people back to the lands where you have chosen them to be. So I am claiming that promise and standing on your words that you will be faithful to what you have claimed. You know, there are over 7,000 promises in the Bible. The more we know God's words, the more effective our prayer life becomes because we can stand with confidence on the word of God and stand with confidence on the promises of God. The Bible tells us that all of the promises of God are yes and amen. Are you confident when you pray? How well do you know the word of God for yourself? How much do you get into scripture? How well do you know what God has promised for you? Finally, we see Nehemiah's prayer move from concern to conviction to confession to confidence. But there is one last thing we see from this prayer. He's committed. In verse 11, we see these words. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was the cupbearer to the king. Whilst Nehemiah was praying, his burden for Jerusalem began to get bigger and bigger and bigger till he got to a point where he says, you know what? I have got to do something about this. You see, one of the things that prayer does is that it makes God's priorities our priorities. Nehemiah's prayer didn't finish by him saying, Lord, provide for the people of Jerusalem in Jesus' name. It'll all be all right. And then he went back and got on with his life. No, his prayer finished by saying, God, here I am. Use me in the situation. I want to be part of the solution. I want to be part of the change. I want to be part of the rebuilding process. Are you in need of some rebuilding in your own life today, I wonder? Do you look at the church right now and think, God, I want to see more and more people come to know you. I want to see the church of Jesus Christ rise up and be effective in the mission that you're calling us to. I want people to grow in their knowledge of Jesus Christ and come to know him for the first time. Do you look at this city, I wonder, and think something in this city needs to change? Guess what? You're the answer. You are the answer. God wants to use you, little old you, with all of your baggage, with all of your flaws. God wants to use you. You are the ones who can make a difference by stepping out, stepping up, and getting involved. Now is the time to rebuild, and you are the ones who are going to make the difference. Are you in need of some rebuilding in your life right now? It starts in one place, prayer. 
on our knees before an awesome God. And in prayer, we grasp God's heart. In prayer, we're reminded of who God is and what he can do. In prayer, we remind ourselves of the promises that God has made to us. And in prayer, our priorities, uh, God's priorities become our priorities. And therefore, we can step out in what he is calling us to do. At the start of this week, as a church, we are beginning together a week of prayer. I want to encourage you, wherever you're watching this from and whatever you're thinking right now, to make this week a priority for prayer. We're starting tonight at 7.30 on Facebook and YouTube. You can join us as we lift up the name of Jesus and seek his face. What would it look like if the church of Jesus Christ committed itself to seeking after God in prayer? I wonder. I'm going to invite the bands to come back up. And I'm going to invite everyone to stand. We're going to worship God together in song. And normally if we were all gathered together in the room, it would be at this point where we'd be opening up for some prayer ministry. In some ways, we can't do that at the moment because we can't lay hands on people and pray closely with people. But you know, God is not bound by our restrictions. God is not bound by social distancing measures. There is no chance of catching coronavirus from God. So you can get as close to God as you allow yourself to get this morning. encourage you as the band start to play maybe if you know you're in need of some rebuilding in your own life maybe if you want to commit once again to the work of God in his church maybe if you're just calling out for God to use you as we sing why don't you just lift your hands in front of you as if you're there to receive a gift the Holy Spirit promises to meet with us when we choose to draw near to him. So whether you're in the room or online right now, let's be a church which commits ourselves once again to his will and his ways. Father God, we recognize today we are in need of rebuilding. We recognize today that we are in need of rebuilding in our own lives and as a church. Lord, today we commit ourselves to you once again. And we commit ourselves to your will and your ways, no matter how tricky that might feel, no matter how uncomfortable that might feel. Today, we choose to be a people who stand on the promises of God. And we declare that through the storm, you are Lord, Lord of all. Lord, will you meet with us right now? And if you're watching online, I want to encourage you. If you think God is... Uh, giving you a word of knowledge, a scripture, just to write that in the comments that we might share it with the wider family. God is here, God is present, God is in your home. Let's worship him together now.